Tonight I'm going to survey and kind of go over some content to focus on a couple specific verses. And tonight as we come to the text, Ahab is the king of Israel, and his dad Omri was the worst, most evil king ever in the northern kingdom. Israel's been a divided kingdom now for about 150 years. There's been six different kings in the north, and none of those kings have walked after the Lord. There's been some good kings in the south, uh, including Asa and Judah, where Jerusalem is. So Israel's a divided kingdom, and we're about 800 B.C., and it's the time of Elijah is the prophet, and Ahab and Jezebel, his wife, who's Sidonian, modern Lebanon, they're an unequally yoked marriage, and like so often happens, she's brought her prophets of Baal to town, and it's not about worshiping Jehovah, God of Israel, with the people of covenant. They've been compromised, and Baal has been their Lord. And Baal means Lord. And so Baal, the worship of Baal, he's Lord of anything. So Lord of weather, Lord of war, Lord of shed innocent blood, Lord of sexual pleasure. He's just Lord. And so that's a better background to understand the cultural battle for the minds of the people, like who's Lord over the people. And remember, Israel's in a covenant with God, and they made a covenant with them, and they're his people unlike any other nation that's been before them or since them in that context. So with that in mind, Ahab gets a lot of attention in the Bible, much more so than many of the kings that you get. In fact, he's got many chapters. He's already featured in in the whole thing with the prophets of Baal and the fire from heaven. The drought was called called out to his face by Elijah. And he's one of those guys that God puts in front and center for us to look at his life. And it's been well said, if you can learn from other people's mistakes, it can save you time, energy, and resources and apply that to your life. Like, the more you can learn from someone else's mistakes, good for you, that if you don't make them. And then, of course, we want to learn from our own mistakes and not repeat them. So they have tonight, we're looking at his life to learn from his mistakes and take his negatives and look at what was God really wanting to do that would be our positives in Jesus' name here tonight as we come to chapters 20 and 21. There are three different events we're going to look at with Ahab. God sends three different people to speak to him on behalf of the Lord. There's the prophet, there's the man of God, and then there's Elijah. And there's three different events, and each of the events, God is speaking to Ahab under different circumstances, and we'll see his progressive failures and where it takes him, whereas the opportunities that are available for anyone in faith in Jesus Christ to grow and learn from similar events in our life. So there's really good application for us tonight. So we're looking at life lessons from King Ahab. As we keep that in mind, we start with chapter 20. And in chapter 20, we had left off where Elijah had had the standoff with the prophets of Baal, called down the fire. Then he, he heard the rain before it rained. He saw the rain before the cloud came. We saw that last week. And then the, the, the rains came, the drought was over, and Elijah fled from Jezebel to the south. Ahab had gone home to tell his wife Jezebel what Elijah had done, killing all the prophets of Baal. And that's where we left Ahab off. The last time we saw Ahab, he's explaining to his wife how Elijah killed all these prophets of Baal that she had imported for false worship in the land of Israel. And now he's reintroduced to us, because then in chapter 20, we see this story where he's there in Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom, and Ben-Hadad, the king of Israel, excuse me, the king of Syria, comes down from his northern border to make war against him. That's what they do in the Middle East, right? It's what people do around the world, actually. And so he comes in to make war, and he says, hey, everything that you have is mine. And, And Ahab was like, you know, strength versus strength. He realizes that Ben-Hadad is much stronger than him with the amount of the military he has, 
this is all verse 1 through 22, and he says, you know, yeah, you're, you're stronger, whatever, you know, this is mine. And he goes, well, it's so much mine, tomorrow we're going to show up and take everything we want in your houses. And, and uh, Ahab goes, well, that's not, not going to work. You know, you can't do that. We'll offer you some things, but we're not going to let you just come into each of our homes and take what's ours. It's, it's not like that. And so he consented with the elders of Israel, and they decided, we're going to take a stand here, and we're going to, if we stand, we stand. If we die, we die, but we're not going to let the Syrians come in and just plunder our houses in front of our wives and our kids and take our wives and kids and our wealth and this kind of stuff. And that's where it was at. And then in the middle of that, so Ahab had purpose in his own strength that he just was not going to allow that to happen, though the odds were heavily against him militarily. And then in verse 13, it said that suddenly a prophet approached him and it's in, ver- in chapter 20 and says, Thus says the Lord, have you seen all this great multitude? That's the multitude of the Syrian coalition. Behold, I will deliver it into your hand today, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And then God went on to tell him, because Ahab goes, well, how's that going to happen? And he's like, by the young leaders, and then by you. You're going to lead them. You're going to be the great leader of this deliverance. God came to him and said, I'm going to give you a great victory. It's like he, he had to be terrified, but in his own strength, he's not going to let these guys just come and take everything he has. So he probably purposely is ready to die that day, but he's not going to let this happen. So he's going to die defending his household, his family, Ahab, without the Lord, because he has no relationship with the Lord. And then the, when he draws this battle line, when he can be terrified, here comes the Lord, and he says, hey, I'm going to give you victory today. In fact, the phrase is the prophet, so this random prophet comes and says, behold, I, I'm with you, and I'm going to deliver them into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So in the relationship between the king of Israel, he's supposed to have a relationship with God because he's the leader of God's people. In this relationship that has not been established personally between the Lord and Ahab because of his unbelief and compromises, God says, hey, I'm going to, I'm going to show you that I'm the Lord. So they have the battle Syria's victorious, excuse me, Israel's victorious against Syria. In fact, they rout him. They give him a beatdown. It's a total beatdown, which brings us to verse 22 in the key verse. So after they, this first story involving Ahab, after they have this deliverance that the Lord gave them supernaturally, in verse 22 of chapter 20, we read, and the prophet, so it's the same prophet that told him you're going to have victory, came to the king of Israel and said to him, go strengthen yourself, take note, and see what you should do for In the spring of the year, the king of Syria will come up against you. So God's given him a victory. It's a profound victory. He's bought time. He's got time. There's been an extension. Wow, that's amazing. I was like, wow, we thought we were going to get crushed by Ben and Dad. There are so many of them. And like, we, we whooped them man for man. In fact, it literally says like man on man. They whooped everybody and they put him to flight. So they'd seen the supernatural hand of God on their behalf. Remember, it's not that long before this when Elijah had said to all these people, if the Lord is Lord, serve him. If Baal's Lord, serve him. And the, and the God who comes down in fire and consumes the offering, that's who the Lord is. And remember, the people said, oh, Jehovah's the Lord, Jehovah's the Lord. That's where we left off with the masses on Mount Carmel. And here they are now, and they had a total victory with Ahab leading them. It's going good. But are they all in with the Lord, which is how they're supposed to be, how we're all supposed to be? Because, of course, the cross, the empty tomb, the day of Pentecost for the church, and Jesus the right hand of the Father is all in with the Lord, right? Yes and amen. So they were meant to be all in with the Lord. God doesn't call down fire from heaven against a wet sacrifice to have people go home and think, like, oh, I might go to church next week if I feel like it. 
You know, like fire from heaven means like get, get your game on, get your hustle on, and get about what you're alive for and fulfill it before you step into eternity with this brief thing we call a vapor of a life. That's really what the, the issue is here. But when the prophet came to him, he said, go strengthen yourself. Take note and see what you should do. Those three phrases. Go strengthen yourself. Well, how does Ahab strengthen himself? Go strengthen yourself. Take note. Take note of what? And consider what you should do. So take note. Okay, so uh, strengthen yourself. A, is a timeout. Grow personally. Like, you could say that. Mm. Take note. Uh, take inventory. Like, what went right? What went wrong? What's going on in your life right now? A, Ahab, you might be king, but have you ever written a journal? Have you ever thought about, like, the Ten Commandments and writing a journal, what they mean to your life? In other words, like, the prophet goes, like, take, go to the, take note. You just saw something that was supernatural affect your life personally and the people you lead, your family, your household, the people you love. Go think about it, strengthen yourself, take note, and think where you're going from here. In other words, we would say that you take inventory in what the next thing is. Remember, in the book of Proverbs, there's, there's knowledge, understanding, and wisdom. Knowledge is these are the facts. Understanding is what they mean, and wisdom is the right decision based upon your understanding. That's the wisdom God gives us for practical living, spiritual living. And so Ahab is like, hey, figure out, think about what happened. Go over the facts. Go over the game film. Look at this test result. Look, look, look at what happened here. Think about it, and then in what you're going to do, because you're going to have another rematch with this guy. He's coming back, because the world, the flesh, and the devil, they always come back. Always. One victory of the devil is just today's victory. He comes back the next day. And one victory over the flesh is just today's victory, because the flesh will be there tomorrow. One victory over our pride is just today's victory, because our pride will want to rule tomorrow. And so, in this apex moment, defining moment of Ahab's life, God has made himself personal to Ahab. Ahab from a distance could see the fire called down from heaven, but here now it's all personal. It's personal. God has granted you a deliverance. You will know I am the Lord. It's personal. You will know I'm the Lord. It's like people who resist the Lord, resist the gospel, resist the good news of Jesus Christ, and they think, oh, you're churchgoers, you're narrow-minded, or, you know, they're nice people, but it's not for me. And, but then when they have an event in their life where God makes it personal between them and the Lord, it's them and the Lord. Like We have all these facades as human beings that we hide behind to distance ourselves from the Lord, to not think about eternity, to not think about our mortality and all these things, and then the Lord will give us an experience where we've been maybe fighting the Lord before we come to the Lord, and we have to, it's you and the Lord. It's like Saul of Tarsus when he's persecuting the Christians, and he has the encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. And Jesus says, Saul, Saul, it's hard to kick against the goads, isn't it? It's that, that moment where God is revealing himself personally, powerfully to an individual. In this case, it's Ahab. When Ahab stood before the throne of God in eternity, he could never say, you didn't reveal yourself to me. Because God most certainly did reveal himself to him here. It's like the people that go to a harvest crusade. Family members bring them. And they, instead of letting the word of God and the gospel judge them and repenting and surrendering to Christ and knowing that this is life and that more abundantly, they sit as judge and jury of 
Phil Wickham, Jeremy Camp, and the bands, and Greg Laurie, and they sit as judge and jury of the people that go forward, and they go home and they reject Christ and they step into eternity. They were so close, but they didn't strengthen themselves. They didn't take inventory, and they didn't think about it. Maybe they went to the crusade because they almost died in a car wreck. Or their mom gave them an early inheritance, and that was the condition of getting an early inheritance is going to go here, Greg Laurie. These things happen every day. Trust me, as a pastor in 34 years, this stuff is the way it works sometimes. So close. As close as Pilate when he said to Jesus, what is truth? So close. As close as Festus and Felix when he said, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. So close. Because the kingdom was right there. So close as the rich young ruler who went away sad because the one thing he had to let go of was the one thing he was unwilling to let go of. So close. And for us, the powerful lesson, if we have given our life to Christ and we call Christ our Lord and Savior and we confess him as Lord and Savior, is when we have these massive events in our life, these defining events of deliverance from the Lord, maybe it's an ongoing trial, a court thing, and your lawyer did this, and their lawyer did that, and you have a temporary victory, but it's not resolved, and you've been so tight with the Lord because you're just terrified it could all go wrong, and you're clinging to the Lord, and you feel like, oh, maybe it's a reprieve, but the Lord's like, no, you need to, you need to, it's not done yet. Your, your worst fear could come to pass with your health, your assets, this relationship, and these things, our country, you know, like, and you say, okay, what then is the lesson well, when the Lord says to you and me personally, or our household, with whatever we're going through, and it's, a, it's something like this where it's cataclysmic, because this was cataclysmic. They were going to lose everything, and God intervened for a non-believer who's fighting them and brought Baal to the community. How, how much more so for the believers in Christ will he intervene? And he would say, go strengthen yourself, take note, and see what you should do. See, when the Lord gives us deliverance in Jesus' name, it should push us, press us in closer to the Lord. Because we strengthen ourselves. When David, when David had a similar event and the raiders came from Ziglag and took his wives and his wealth and all the mighty men's people and everything, it says that they were going to stone David and kill him. And it says, what did David do? He strengthened himself in the Lord. At his darkest hour, he pressed into the Lord and strengthened himself in the Lord. And at those darkest hours, that's the wisest thing we can do. The times of uncertainty, when it's halftime and the worst trial of your life and it's halftime and you're making half, mid-game adjustments, you want to press into the Lord, not come up with another plan that you and I have created because we're little geniuses because we're creating God's image because we can come up with great ideas from the, you know, the creativity of the right brain, the metrics of the left brain. We can figure out this incredible thing to put the Jeep on Mars, but see, that won't do it. What we need is the mind of Christ and the mind of the Lord that goes over both. See, you and I, when we're pressed in by the cruxable of life, the Lord has the answers of knowledge, understanding, and wisdom, and we have the mind of Christ. So all, all the intelligence in the universe that is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, through the Spirit in us, he can give us the answers and the keys, but it's always going to come from trusting the Lord and pressing into the Lord. If anyone thinks he's stantic, he lets he fall. It comes from the Lord. Everything good, just, too noble, true and noble, praiseworthy, the answers, the wisdom, it comes from the Lord. And we need to press into the Lord in this difficult time. Where Ahab pulled away, we need to press in. Where Ahab should have strengthened himself, he actually weakened himself because he didn't go into the next battle strong in the Lord. He didn't strengthen his dependence on the Lord. His confidence was not the Lord. 
And when it came what to do, who even knows what he thought to do? But I'll tell you what's always good to do, and we know this, is to every day to cling to the Lord. For as Moses said to Israel, he is your life and the length of your days. And Jesus in this John 15, when he said, abide in me and I in you, for apart from me, apart from me you can do nothing. He, the phraseology there is very similar to Moses before he died and gave him the law. And he said, the Lord is your life and the length of your days. What Jesus says as the vine and the branches in John 15 is very similar in the concept of total dependence. Ahab needed to press into the Lord with everything he had, every cell in his body, every fiber he had. He needed to repent for the, letting Jezebel, his unequally yoked wife, bring in the prophets of Baal. He needed to repent for bringing the drought on the land. When he said to Elijah, you're the trouble of Israel, and right here when he had this victory, he should have looked up Elijah, sent him a, a text or something and said, hey, I'm really sorry I said you're the trouble of Israel. I'm the trouble of Israel, like you said, because I didn't obey the word of the Lord. And I am really sorry. Can you give me some guidance and get ready for springtime because Ben-Hadad's coming back? And what's Elijah going to do? He's like, yeah, I'll be right back. I'm coming right now. What time? We'll do coffee, right? We'll go to vacancy, whatever. Let's do it. Like, that's what Elijah would have done. But Ahab didn't do that, but we can. You see, his failure and mistake is our lesson. When the going gets tough in the kingdom, we press into the king. That's what we do. We press in, we press in, we press in. And it's interesting, being a pastor for so many years, I've seen people in the very hardest cruxables of life, and they generally do two different things within the church of Jesus Christ. Some people really do press into the Lord, and they get stronger and stronger. And so whether they're losing a child, or losing their job, or losing their wealth, or, all, or a dream that's crushed, or lost an arm like Bethany Hamilton as a, as a young girl, and watching her dream, it just we were there, we saw, I mean, we... And some people just get better, and they write books, and they make movies, and they inspire, and they stir up, and then the kingdom advances. But some people, they do the exact opposite, and they start out in a church. They were in the church when the storm came, and instead of pressing in the Lord, they walk away from the Lord. And they become bitter, and they blame the Lord for this, and blame the Lord for that, and if God's a God of love, and this and that. And it's, a, it's, a, it's hard to watch. It's hard to watch. We need to learn from Ahab, press in to the Lord. Not to retract, but to strengthen ourselves, not in ourselves, but in the Lord. And to take note from God's word by his spirit what he's showing us individually. And to consider before the Lord, Lord, what would you have me to do? Jesus said to seek, knock, and ask. The Bible tells us if we lack wisdom, let us ask of God and he'll give it to us. He will show us what to do. Wait on the Lord, go this way, but... When this type, these type of events happen in our life, we need to get stronger in the Lord. That's, that's what the, the Lord wants to do. And unfortunately, that's not what Ahab did. We need to strengthen ourselves in the Lord. Now, the second event in Ahab's life is what came next in this story. Because the Assyrians, in fact, did come back. So verses 23 to the end of the chapter, 43, is all about the Assyrians, excuse me, the Assyrians coming back. And round two. So Ben-Hadab reloads. His guys say, hey, they won because they serve the God of the hills. We, are, we serve the God of the valleys. We'll fight these guys in the valleys. We'll win. And because they said that, the Lord's like, no, you, no, you know. Like, God will let some nations get away with saying what they say. But for whatever reason with the Syrians, he goes, no, I'm going to. That's not going to go. So in the springtime, the Syrians came back. And in verse 28 of chapter 20, we read that a man of God. Now, this is not the prophet. This is a different person. So God's giving... God's giving Ahab a different messenger. He's had Elijah, then he's had this, this, uh, this prophet, this random prophet, 
for what we just read about. Now he's got this, this man of God. We don't even know who he is. He's, he's the man of God. So he shows up in verse 28, and he says, Hey, because the Syrians have said the Lord is God of the hills, but he's not God of the valley, therefore I will deliver all that great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So this is a second chance. This is like a second chance for Ahab to respond to the Lord. And by the way, the Bible tells us, reject a divisive man or woman after the first and second admonition. So Jesus told Peter, you need to forgive someone 490 times, but when you're in the ministry and you're trying to figure out if you have a ministry with somebody and they're divisive and problematic in a, in a group setting, in a home group or a church or whatever, hey, you get two exhortations and then you can be invited to leave. So really... Ahab got two chances, and Paul, when he's given counsel to his spiritual leaders in the early church, is like, hey, two chances. After that, you gotta, you got to move them out and give them over to the devil to do what he's going to do in their life because we don't have time for this. You know, it's two chances to get it right. And Ahab, yet again, a second time, God says to him, you shall know that I am the Lord. And he goes, this time the Lord says, through this man of God, I'm not delivering you. This time I'm doing it because, so in the first deliverance, he said, I'm just going to do it. Say, hey, look, see this multitude? I'm going to deliver them. But the second time he says, through this man of God, I'm going to deliver them to to you because they're taunting me and saying that I'm the God of the hills. I'm going to show them I am the Lord. There is no other. Like sometimes God just does that. Essentially, there's been like 30 great nations in human history that have ruled the world. And all of them have failed to rule the world eventually because their family units were destroyed. Did you know that? Their definition of a family was redefined and the family unit was destroyed. Just so you know. If God wants to destroy a nation because they go against his word and his framework and what he blesses and what he does, how he defines it, because he doesn't change, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's like gravity. We want to be on the right side of gravity. Gravity is never going to change. Gravity is gravity. Sowing and reaping is sowing and reaping. Those are the two greatest laws in the universe. I'm convinced the two greatest laws in the universe are gravity, physical realm, sowing and reaping, spiritual realm. As a man sows, as a woman sows, so shall she reap. You sow mercy, you get mercy. You sow bountifully, you reap bountifully. It's just, it, you, you sow anger, death, hatred, and that's how, that's what you get. It's exactly what you get. God's universe is so perfect. And so here, these people are taunting the Lord, and God says, no, this is my land that I gave to my people. And he's not going to do this every time when let the Syrians come in, the Babylonians come in, even Alexander the Great, and let them do what they did, the Seleucid Empire. He let them do that, even the Romans. But when he says it's game over, it's game over for that nation. And it was game, game over on this one for Syria in this battle because they're saying, no, our God's better than their God. And God's like, no, this has nothing to do with Ben-Hadad anymore that way. It has to do with me and you guys, and I'm going to show you who the Lord is. But in that, he says to Ahab, you will know that I am the Lord. So it's the second chance for Ahab. It's like, hey, you know, like when your wife goes like, honey, like, hmm, you know, pretty obvious this time, right? Well, I'm not sure. No, it is. Son of Adam, it's obvious. You will know. Or you can go the other way around too. Honey, you, well, I don't know. You know like, but it's obvious. You shall know that I am the Lord. That's what he says in verse 28. So the second victory happens. So there's a second victory where God gives them great victory. And they absolutely smash the Syrians again a second time against all odds. 
It's like Gideon's mighty men with the Midianites in the book of Judges. It's against all odds. So they have the victory. Then Ben-Hadad, who, was, who had just told them less than a year before, I'm going to take your wives, your kids, your loot, your silver, your gold, everything, and there's nothing you can do about it. That same Ben-Hadad, well, he's fled for his life. He's hiding, and he's fearful of his life that he's going to be executed by Ahab. But then Ahab finds out he's still alive, and so Ben-Hadad comes before him, and in verse 32 of chapter 20, uh, Ben-Hadad stands before Ahab, and uh, he says, ah, oh, he's my brother, you know, like, so Ahab says that Ben-Hadad is, so he heard that Ben-Hadad was alive, and so in verse 32, he says, oh, Ben-Hadad's still alive? He is my brother. <laughs> Wait a minute, the guy was just going to take your wife, your kids, and all your wealth, but he's your brother? See, when, you don't, when you're fighting the Lord, you don't think right. So the men watched closely, and they, 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 brought, they told ben hey, he says you're his brother, let's go. So they, he goes before Ahab, Ahab makes a treaty with him, verse 34, he makes a treaty, and they, they actually make a business agreement, hey, you'll set up your market here like my dad set up his market there, and let's shake hands, let's make money together. So he makes an alliance and a treaty with the very people that were trying to destroy God's people earlier that year on two different occasions, including just the previous week. If the Syrians had been successful against the northern kingdom, they would have taken all the loot, taken the women, they would have raped, murdered, pillaged across the board. That's what they would have done. And here's Ahab like, well, you know, we're, we're you know, Semitic people. Like, you know, he's my brother. Let's get it. Hey, you know, like, okay. Well, that doesn't go well with the Lord. So in verses 35 to the end of the chapter 43, God sends uh, a certain man of the sons of the prophets. So this could be the man of God could be a different one. So this could even be a third guy. But he shows up, and he basically says, you know, he puts a bandage over his eye and makes up this story to let Ahab say what is self-condemning of himself. See, basically, the prophet, this man says, hey, I was told to guard this person in the battle because, you know, once you guard them, you're accountable for their life. And so if you lose them, then what they were facing, you face. And so he says, then he escaped when I wasn't paying attention. And Ahab's like, well, that's, you know, you let him escape. That's on you. That's your deal. And then the prophet takes the bandage off. He goes, it's me, the prophet. You don't like me. Ahab's like, oh, no, it's one of those guys. And he says, hey, because you let Ben-Hadad go, verse 42, thus says the Lord, because you've let slip out of your hand a man whom I appointed to utter destruction, therefore your life shall go for his life and your people for his people. Wow. So the king went away, you know. That wasn't good news. That'll take the, the part, that'll take the part, that'll take, they unplug the DJ board, right? Party's over. <laughs> it's, just, it's like handwriting on the wall with Belshazzar, hey, the party's over. This is, everyone's like, this phrase is very profound in verse 42. Because you let live, because you let slip out of your hand a man whom I appointed to utter destruction, your life will go for his life, your people for his people. Now, we know in the Old Testament, this is that context where this is real war in the realm of time, space, and matter. These enemies really want to destroy God's people who God has put there. So we understand that context. But as we come to the New Testament, and we think like, well, what, you know, what's the application here? If we're going to learn life lessons from Ahab, like, so he didn't destroy. God says because you didn't destroy. I don't like destroying things. I definitely don't like death, right? Like, I just, I just, you all know I don't like death at all. Um, But I just don't like it, because where we're going, there is no death. There's just no death. There's just, there's just no death. Not even, you know, there's just no death. Like, 
Nothing's dying in eternity. Everything's the animal kingdom, all that's there. It's, it's a different dimension. It's different function, different way it works. And there is no death. And I'm looking forward to that. So when you say something has to die, like, I don't like anything dying. You know, like, people we love die. Our dogs die. It just rips our heart out when our animals die. It's just like, oh, just, it's gut-wrenching, you know? And I, I cried when my guinea pig died, when Charlie died. I'm just, I still get sad when I think about Charlie not out there in the backyard. Like, I, you know, like... If we're trying to catch a road and I don't have the death trap, I got like the catch and rescue trap, you know? Like release them behind the field there by mothers and beach bull. Like, hey, good luck, you know? Squeak, squeak, squeaker, squeaker. You know, here's some dog food for the first few days, all right? Go get them, you know? I just don't like death. I don't like it at all. In the New Testament, we'll come back to this, chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, I've been talking about this because I had an epiphany on this, where the person who prophesies, the woman of the man, they speak things that are edifying, um, exhortative, and comforting. And I just had this full epiphany last week thinking about that. That whenever the Lord is speaking, listen to me, when the Lord is speaking, he's building up, he's stirring up, or he's lifting up. When the Lord is speaking in his word, in it, through his word, in, to his church, to his church, he's going he's gonna to build up, he's going to stir up, or he's going to lift up. That's what he's going to do. So that's what I like. I like New Testament, you know, the kingdom, Jesus on the throne. It's all, you know, unicorns and happy days. That's what we're going toward. So when I read, like, ah, you got to, like, you should have killed this guy, but because he, I appointed him for destruction. Ben Haddad was under capital punishment from the Lord. He's like a capital punishment murder criminal that has to be executed, and they let him go kind of like what we watched the last few years when people destroy stuff and they're on the streets a day later, right? Like, how does that work? Okay, well, I don't know, but that's not my, that's not my lane, but, you know, hopefully they put them back away. Bad people go to bad places. That's part of God's design that criminals aren't allowed to uh, impose their will on innocent people that are law-abiding according to God's universe. But Ben-Hadad was appointed to death and he was released. In fact, not only was he released after all the threats against God's people, he's now in a business relationship with the people he's trying to destroy. <laughs> but, you know, looking ahead to preview of coming attractions, Syria keeps coming after Israel in every generation of future kings. So we're not done with Syria, uh, Syria in Kings, Second Kings, and the Chronicles. These guys, they just keep coming. Look at Israel today. It's just, it just goes on and on and on till the Lord comes back. So the real application we have to say is, okay, what's the application for us? What is God telling us to destroy that we didn't destroy, and now because we didn't destroy it, it's going to destroy us. Oh, now that's New Testament. Because we're told that the spirit and the flesh, they war against each other. Our new life in Christ, when we come to Christ, the spirit comes and dwells us, and the spirit wars against the flesh, our selfish, sinful nature. And we're to reckon the old woman, the old man dead. And our entire journey with Jesus is the spirit taking dominion over our life and our thoughts because he who sets our mind on the spirit uh, fulfills the things of the spirit. And they walk according to the spirit, Romans 8 says. And so there's this battle. And if we don't proactively crucify ourselves, because Jesus said, if anyone come after me, let them deny themselves and pick up their cross. The call to Christ is crucifixion, to follow Christ. And it's crucifixion of that which offends, which is our pride, our flesh, and our worldly lust. That's why we're told in 1 John chapter 2 that whoever loves, whoever loves the world, the love of Christ is not in him. Not the world of people that we love in the world that don't know the Lord, but the world system, the lust of the eyes, 
the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Jesus, Adam sinned in these areas and brought death on all of us. We're all dying. Things are going wrong in our life physically from here to eternity because in Adam all sin and all die. Jesus came, the second Adam, who defeated Satan in those three areas of temptation, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, and the lust of the flesh. He had victory so we can have victory. Those three things will destroy us and they'll have us cast out from God's presence. The victory in Christ will liberate us and set us free and have us growing in the glory of God's presence. So these things have to be destroyed. They're under a death sentence. My pride, my flesh, the lust of my eyes. And the world system that appeals to it is not to have dominion over us. And the devil who uses these things, because the devil uses the world for temptation, and he tries to tempt us in one of these three categories. Every failure of sin comes from the flow chart of one of those three things. So if we think about, okay, Ahab didn't destroy what he's supposed to destroy, so if we come to Christ, what are we supposed to destroy? The person that was dunked in the water when you're baptized, that's who. Water baptism is so beautiful when you get like the full under, you know, like when you're you know, in the ocean or the Dean's pool and you go under, it represents that person is dead for an Adam all sin and die. So when you come out of the water, that represents the new woman, the new man. That's the life we're called to live. So if we're walking that life and living that life and going out things in the spirit, but then we go back to the world, then now we're resurrecting the one that was drowned in the water. We're bringing back the dead. We're lifting up that corpse. That's really what it's like to, you know, to, because our identity is in Christ and that's what baptism represents. So when we walk after our pride, our flesh, and the lust of our eyes, we're just bringing the dead person back to our own demise and own destruction. So when we think about how we destroy what God's called to destroy is, well, again, Romans 12 says, you know, to present ourselves a living sacrifice, not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind and present ourselves as living sacrifices to the Lord. So it's that we die daily. So the idea is that, hey, we set our mind on the things of the Spirit, we pursue the things of the Spirit, we're going forward, onward, and upward. And we're going towards the Lord. We're going in the things of the Lord. See, our allegiance, our collaborations, our friendships are with the Lord. They're with the angels. They're with the glory. They're with the kingdom. They're with the immortal body, the glorified body. That's, what our, that's our allegiance. That's what we're going toward. So that's what we're moving toward. And as long as we're moving toward that, we will continue to execute the death sentence on things that are contrary to the Lord. So we're not going to let a, a root of bitterness come in our heart with malice and anger and wrath. We're not going to give way to the flesh. Or when we have failures, we're not going to let those failures define us, but we're going to seek forgiveness. We're going to be cleansed, and we're going to go forward from those things. He made friendship with the very thing that would destroy him. Pastor Chuck Smith used to say this, and I quote this fairly often, the flesh is never satisfied. You can't make any kind of a peace deal or treaty with the flesh. It just, it, the flesh wants to reign. You give the flesh a quarter acre, the flesh wants a half acre. You give the flesh one house in your neighborhood, the flesh wants to own all the houses on the cul-de-sac. You give the flesh a country, he, the flesh isn't satisfied, it wants to rule the world. That's how the flesh works. So we have to, we have to execute the death sentence 
on that which is contrary to the Lord, most contrary to the Lord in our life, and that is our pride, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes. That's what we need to do. Ben-Hadad didn't destroy it. We need to. Now, the third incident with Ben-Hadad, so the first two involved the Syrians, battle number one, battle number two, and in both cases, different voices speaking for the Lord. In both cases, the Lord saying, you shall know that I'm the Lord. It was an invitation Two chances to make it right with the Lord. But the third situation, he crossed a line with the Lord. He crossed a boundary, and it was not a good ending. In chapter 21 is the story of Naboth's vineyard. It's just one of those chapters you don't like to read about in the Bible because it's an injustice. Because Ahab coveted the vineyard of his neighbor, Naboth, and he said, sell it to me. I'll buy it, I'll cash you out on it, or I'll trade you other property. And Naboth said, well, you know, that property is my parents. It's an inheritance. And we all know that every inheritance in Israel came from the Lord. Because when Joshua came into the promised land, they divvied the land up by the tribes. The lot belongs to the Lord. They cast lots. So that Naboth owns this land and has a well-tended vineyard, so much so that the king's coveting it, is the result of him receiving inheritance and being fruitful with that inheritance. He's a good steward of what he received. His property is desirable. And he's like, well, no, the Lord gave it to us. It's for my for others, and um, I'm going to give it to my descendants. like, no. I mean, can you imagine saying no to some of our people in power in America these days? No. Look how people got in the last two years over just craziness. There's still laws that tell people in power in America, no. But they would like to remove those laws. You'd like to say, hey, no, that's not right. That's not, that's not science. That's not this. That's not that. That's not, no, that's not constitutional. That's not biblical. No. But if they can come in and say, yes, that's how the Soviet Union worked. That's how the Communist Party in China works. You know, they just got more power last week. If you didn't see that, there's more power. You just, that's what totalitarian tyranny people do. And you'd like to think that you say, no, that's an injustice. Look, God's word says, this is my property. And God gave it to me. See, it's right here. Book of Joshua. The law, the land is my land. my land. is my land. I'm not selling it to you. That's why we have good judges. That's why we have good courts in Israel. So even the king can't come say, give me your land. You just can't do that. And the king's like, well, that's not how it works around here. He goes home, has a pity party. Jezebel, who could care less about the God of Israel because she's still mad about the prophets of Baal being killed. She says, I'll get it for you. Writes a letter in his name. Puts a stamp of seal on it. Sends it to the village people. Say, hey, get two scoundrels. Make them lie. Say that say that uh, Naboth badmouthed the king and God. Now the, the evil are so crafty. And, when, and then stone him. Take him out. Just kill him right there. And they did it. And then she went to her husband. Ahab said, hey, you know, it's all good now. He's gone. It's your land. Go, go claim your land. What does he do? He goes and claims the land. He goes and claims the vineyard. He didn't put the plan together as wife did, but he claimed the vineyard. And on that, he crossed a line. He murdered Naboth in cold blood. But he never, see, here's something interesting, because you think about it, David murdered Uriah, because I've been thinking about this, okay? David murdered Uriah, but he found all kinds of mercy with the Lord, all kinds of forgiveness and restoration, because David always received correction from the Lord and had a heart for the Lord, and in the end, he loved the Lord and his people. Ahab never had a heart for the Lord, didn't love the Lord, didn't love the Lord's people. He could care less, and there's, therein is a difference if you connect those thoughts. So God sends Elijah to him, and in verse 17 of this chapter, 
21, it says, the word of the, Lord came to Elijah, the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who lives in Samaria. There he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone down to take possession of it. You shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, you have murdered and also take, have you murdered and also taken possession? And you shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, In the place where the dogs lick the blood of Naboth, the dogs shall lick your blood, even yours. So Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? See, that's the irony of these two stories because he called Ben-Hadad his brother who was his enemy and the one who's looking out for his best interest, Elijah, he calls him his enemy. And the Bible says, woe to those who call good evil and evil good. The voice of truth is always truth. You can always find people willing to tell you what you want to hear but what you really need is God's word and people that love the Lord telling you what you need to hear. You can always know if it's true or not. Just by the way. So sad. Like when parents, when kids would rebel against their parents going after drugs and violence and crime with their friends and their, their parents that were good parents suddenly are, are, are bad and their friends are good. It's, it's so, you know, like it's so hard to see that and I've seen a lot of it in 61 years of human experience. God forbid that any of us in this room would not know truly who our friend is and who our enemy is. Jesus is our friend and those who are yoked in line with Jesus are our friends. And our enemies may be our enemies, and we're called to love them and forgive them, but we're not called to be under their influence and under their manipulation and their control. And we're definitely not called to be under their worldview and have it forced upon us in our hearts and personal convictions. Oh, have you found me, oh, my enemy? And he answered, I have found you because, see, in the rebuke after he let Ben-Hadad live, he said, the, the man of God said, because. So God gave him a because. It's like you're standing in a court of law because you ran the red light, because you killed someone. Here it says, because you've sold yourself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. And then he goes on to say, I'm going to bring calamity on you, your household, and everything else. And then we get a summary verse in verse 25 where it says a little farther down, but there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up. And he behaved very abominably in following idols according to all that the Amorites had done, whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. And that's the way it was. So this final lesson from Ahab is he was sold to do evil. You sold yourself, verse 20, to do evil. And then it says in verse 25, in a summary, no one like Ahab sold himself to do wickedness because Jezebel stirred him up. So he was sold to do evil. He was sold to do wickedness. He was all in. I'm sold out. Like, you know, when you're all in, you're sold out, right? Like, when you have a business plan and it's a good one and you're just, you're just sold out. It's a, it's a spirit of being an entrepreneur. You know, like, you're just sold out. Like, you're sold out. When you're in love with someone, like, I'm sold out. When I had my dream to win the Pipe Masters, I'm sold out. My whole life is Pipe Masters. I'm all in. I'm sold out. Sold out is all. I'm all in. It's every chip on the table. Like at a poker game. I'm, I'm sold out. All in. That's what he did with evil and wickedness. And we're told he was led that way by those he let influence him, most particularly and specifically his evil wife, Jezebel. Which reminds us that the Bible tells us that bad company corrupts good morals. A basic principle, universal law in God's universe, is evil people will take good people and corrupt them for evil if they hang out with them. All the statistics show that 
people who get involved in drugs, smoking, drugs, alcohol, abuse, uh, all these things, they surround themselves with people who do that, and you just stay with them a little bit, and you're going to go the same way. I used to tell people when I first it was in junior high that I was allergic to marijuana. I could never smoke weed. I'm like, now I'm allergic to it because I had all kinds of allergies. So I used it as an excuse. But I hung out with the same crew of guys every weekend, high school football games, this, that, and everything else. And sure enough, soon enough, you know, you're going to try it and you're going to do it. And then you're going to be a little stoner and get expelled from high school in your sophomore year. That's what's going to happen. See, the devil uses people, influences, ideologies to stir us up for evil and sell ourselves out against the Lord and to be sold out for wickedness. And so we're reminded that as we watch people, even in our generation, sold out for wickedness, where they just go over the top with wickedness. And like, who does that? Who takes a day off from work to go stand on a street corner in San Diego with 10 people and just scream at people over this thing or that thing? When it's contrary to the Lord. It's such a bad look on the day of the Lord when the books are open in Revelation 20. It's just, ah, oh, you think like, ah, oh, these people are frustrated. And they're like, well, actually, they're just going to do what they're going to do because the books are going to be open in Revelation 20. And that highlight is going to be played. This is what you did on this day in 2022. You went downtown San Diego and you screamed at people and, and you were deranged and self-deceived and delusional and against the Lord. You were sold out for evil. People in power of influence, people in, people in educational influence, uh, political influence, and these things, and, and judicial influence, where they're sold out for evil. They can't just say, a woman's a woman and a man's a man. They just, like, they're sold out for evil. It's just, ah, oh, it's so contrary to the kingdom, the universe, and the coming glory. And you can't help them in most cases. So what we need to learn from people that are sold out for evil is to be sold out for righteousness. To be sold out for the kingdom, to be sold out for truth and not be moved from it under any circumstance no matter how much exterior pressure is. Surround ourselves, fill our mind, pump the pump, if you will, with the word of God. Every day, the truth, the truth, the truth, the word, the word, the word, the word, the truth, the truth, the truth. Fill our mind with the things of the kingdom. Fill our minds with the things that build us up and stir us up and lift us up. Be kingdom-minded and not let these people at war with God influence our mind and fill our mind with their poison and their darkness and their negativity against the truth of God's coming glory and kingdom. That's what we got to do. And we have to proactively do it. Because if you don't fill your mind and your heart with the kingdom, you're going to go out in the world and people are just going to dump on you all the garbage and trash of false views, satanically inspired views, and this garbage, and they just want to wear you down, wear you down, wear you down, until you say, okay, it's all right, until you say, yeah, we, I can do that too, until you say, let's all do it together, and then you don't even know where you're at when it's said and done. That's how it works. We need to be faithful and strong in the Lord, and sold out for the Lord, and we at all costs, must avoid being sold out for evil and surround ourselves with people and influences for evil. What we read, what we hear, needs to be edifying and encouraging and moving us toward the glory. I don't have time to listen to demented, demonically inspired and deceived people to let them influence me, my worldview, and the value of my life this day and the time that this day represents. I don't have time for it. In fact, I feel like I've wasted a lot of time letting that already happen in my life. And I have no intention of letting it shape me, mold me, influence me, or distract me from my kingdom objectives from now to the day of Christ Jesus. 
And I would just say, hopefully you're the same way, with yes and amen. Jezebel stirred him for evil. If we look at our life and anyone is putting anything into our life and touching our lives with their fingerprints that is not building up, stirring up, or lifting up, then in Jesus' name, you got to put some boundaries and you got to keep it out of your, your space with the king. Because with the king, it's forward, onward, and upward. And there's just not enough time. Most people waste their lives because they let their minds be filled with the influence of ungodly people, stirring them up for evil, and poison their mind against righteousness. There's just no time for it. Life is so short. We need to be sold for righteousness and sold for the Lord. And those are the lessons of Ahab. And I suppose it's a great application to take from two chapters about a man I would never want to be anything like, ever emulate, or, or I just don't even like to read about this man. But if I can learn from his mistakes, then if we can learn from his mistakes, and it's good for us, and we have a future and a hope in Jesus' name.